Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Burn by Books, the podcast for those driven to penury by book shopping. I'm your host, Chris Holmes. This week's show features an interview with a towering figure in the world of fiction, Rebecca Mackay. We'll be talking about her most recent novel, The Great Believers, her oral history of the ACT UP protests in Chicago, what it means to write about the pandemic that already was, judging literary prizes, and so much more. As you would guess from her novels and short fiction, she is a generous thinker, full of creative energy and a commitment to the hard work of researching the historical novel. It was an exhilarating conversation, and I'm excited to share it with you. So without further ado, here's my interview with Rebecca Mackay. Welcome back to Burned by Books. It's an honor to welcome my guest today, Rebecca Mackay. She is author of the novels The Borrower, The Hundred Year House, and The Great Believers, as well as the short story collection Music for Wartime. Of her many prizes and accolades, she was most recently awarded the 2020 Mark Twain Award for Distinguished Contributions to Midwestern Literature. She is currently the artistic director of Story Studio in Chicago. Today, our focus will be Rebecca's 2018 novel, The Great Believers, which made her a household name for anyone who cares about books. While this doesn't begin to capture all of The Great Believers' amazing press and responses, a short list includes finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, finalist for the National Book Award, winner of the ALA Carnegie Medal, winner of the L.A. Times Book Prize, winner of the Stonewall Award, and a New York Times 10 Best Books of 2018. In addition, the novel was optioned by Amy Poehler's movie production company. For the few of you who don't already own and love this novel, first off, where have you been? But here's a quick gloss. The novel is a braided story that moves chronologically back and forth between the late 20th and early 21st centuries, with the latter following, or the former, following the story of Yale Tishman, who works for a fictional art museum at Northwestern University, and whose circle of friends becomes a microcosm for the raging fire of the AIDS crisis in the mid to late 1980s in Chicago. The story in the near present takes up Fiona, who after the death of her brother Nico from AIDS, goes on her own journey to find her daughter in Paris and come to understand what life among dying friends has meant for her own story and struggle. The novel is a carefully researched and exquisitely executed imagination of a plague era that came before our current one, 
and which devastated initially the gay community and which prompted willed blindness, bigotry, and utter neglect from politicians, the healthcare system, and the society writ large. The Great Believers is both a historical marker of that struggle imagined through very particular fictional lives, and it is the dramatization of how precarious times ask of us impossible challenges that we must nevertheless rise to. I can say with confidence that this book has been so widely embraced because of its profound well of empathy and deep emotional connection to the community it seeks to represent, but also because it is one of the most perfectly accomplished novels of the 21st century, by which I mean that it draws upon the three most lasting and critical components of the novel genre with uncommon power a narrative eye that captures in detail the lives of richly drawn characters who feel like people we should know, dialogue that performs the diverse kinds of speech and conversation that distinguish a full life, never resorting to canned chit-chat or expected phrasing, and finally it is carried by a propulsive plot that wields a pathos that is never more or less than the real tragedies of living. I was and continue to be deeply affected by this novel. Welcome to the show, Rebecca Mackay. Thank you. That was way too kind and really lovely. Thanks. No, I'm I'm so happy that um, you agreed to come on and, and chat. Um, I wanted to start by talking a little bit about what is the profound core of the novel. It's a novel about the plague before COVID, um, one that became a pandemic ultimately, but started primarily as what was described as a, quote, strange cancer affecting gay men. The novel at its core is about how times of enormous fragility and vulnerability reveal the bonds of community that must sustain us. How was the book um, changed in your mind in the wake of the COVID plague? Yeah, you know, one of the most interesting things for me in the past year and a half has been that a lot of my translations, uh, particularly my European translations, have been coming out uh, you know, last summer, this mm. summer, this fall, um, coming out into a very different world than the book initially came out into in the U.S. Um, and in its it, just in its English global uh, edition, um, it means that uh, I think people. Have, I know that readers have had a different connection to this book, um, reading it, you know, say in Italy, mm -hmm. um, a, a couple months ago or reading it in Poland last summer. Um, and, and, and certainly plenty of people are still discovering it here and then having that different response, but it's really been, uh, it, it's been made evident to me because of the amount of press that I've been doing the interviews, um, or, you know, virtual festivals, um, where, uh, uh, you know, that are for the translations that in, in which journalists or booksellers uh, particularly want to talk about the parallels to COVID uh, and particularly make clear the ways that their own initial reading of the book was uh, was influenced by reading it in lockdown mm -hmm. um, or reading it in the wake of all that. Um, I, I'm not sure that COVID has changed my relationship relation to my own book but i will say 
that the research that I did for The Great Believers, which was, you know, about five years, all told, uh, concomitant with the writing, that research absolutely informed my understanding of COVID and its response. Hmm. So, you know, I, I can you I, say I, more about that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, they are fundamentally different as viruses with some similarities. It's been a fundamentally different national and global response with some similarities. And, and it, you kind of got to do that old high school compare and contrast, you know, <laughs> to, to look at this. Um, there's a reason we were all trained in that, right? Um, I think early on, people were making some simplistic comparisons uh, on Twitter and such, and then got blasted for that. Um, because the, the, the comparisons are not simple. Uh, mm -hmm. They're they incredibly different just as viruses. At the same time, the fact that we had the mRNA uh, vaccine so quickly has to do with decades of AIDS research. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's it's very much thanks to, to those researchers who are often completely underfunded and underappreciated. Um, there are other just eerie things like Dr. Fauci was the face of uh, the medical oh, community right. yeah. for AIDS. You know, he was I've, the number of people I've talked to, you know, just um, AIDS survivors and activists who I've stayed in close touch with saying, if you told me that I would be glad to see Dr. Fauci's face on TV again in my lifetime, <laughs> you know, <laughs> knock me over with a feather. Um, the, the most interesting parallels for me, parallels and contrasts for me are in the governmental and political and, and societal response. And um, I think certainly the fact that there isn't any stigma to COVID particularly mm -hmm. um made that, you know, just a world of difference from the early days and, and the ongoing days of AIDS. Um, the the fact that it could, you know, spread to that pretty much anybody could could see themselves as being affected. At the same time, I think um, we have, you know, just this, it, it, it is a contrast die thrown into society um, mm -hmm. that, that, again, just, you know, what a stark reminder of economic differences in access to medicine, yeah. um, in community differences in access to medicine, and the the you know the mess that is the American healthcare system. As soon as certain people started to realize early on that this was going to possibly not affect them because of the amount of money they had or the amount of healthcare they had. Um, there were people who just, you know, f with great predictability, with horrible predictability, washed their hands of it mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and, and decided, oh, they're on the personal level or, you know, these were politicians saying, OK, then it's not my problem. And um, especially early on, it really seemed like COVID would settle, um, was settling in um, already marginalized communities. Yeah, um, that's right. And in, in urban areas, black and brown populations, all that. And, and that didn't really last, you know, because then we get South Dakota <laughs> really <laughs> yeah. hard. Um, but um, those early days, that there was just a horrifying echo of, oh, well, then it's it's happening to those people over there. Yeah, it's um, a it's a New York City thing, and you know, you know how those right. people are, and right. that sort of nonsense. Right. Yeah, yeah, it was it was it, you know, and I think anyone who has paid attention to the history of the AIDS epidemic and the ongoing history of the AIDS epidemic in America, because we still have, you know, 1.1 million Americans living with HIV. Mm. Um, and it's not in the news. 
and it's not getting a lot of public attention largely because it is black and brown populations in already disenfranchised communities in coastal cities and people just um you know either there's a kind of blithe ignorance of oh isn't this dealt with already um or there's a really malignant dismissal of it Mm. um you know trump fired or you know let go every remaining member of the hiv aids advisory council that's right december 2017 um among the litany right right it was like a blip in the news if if that it was between christmas and new year's when he knew no one would notice um you know uh, he knew that there would not be a huge public outcry because nobody pays attention to this. And he knew that if anything, it would gain him points with some of his um, closest allies and supporters um, who, who, you know, have some of that same, whether it's, you know, uh, hatred or ignorance mm-hmm. or both, or they tend to go hand in hand. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. They sure that do. Was there. Yeah, that was there from the beginning, from the from the earliest days of this. It's amazing that that can still be wielded as some sort of like, um, you know, power play uh, today. Mm-hmm. And and yet it's amazing, but not surprising, sadly. Yeah, yeah. And, and you could say, you know, I, who <laughs> who knows who dares to imagine what goes on in that man's mind. But, you know, it, it might have just been fully like oh, well, that's not a thing anymore. We don't need these. What is this? Right, and right, not right, right. And to do any research or ask anybody. Or it could have been, you know, pure malevolence. And I, I have no idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and and as you say, it's it's sort of always a, a, a gross mixture of, of both. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the ignorance tends to come from not wanting to know, which is rooted in not caring, which is rooted in hatred. Mm-hmm. You can't, you know, sustain that much hatred for that long. Most people can't without already, without being fairly ignorant, without ignoring um, the humanity of other people. It's a a weird, weird cycle. The, um, you know, some of its invisibility, I think comes from this fiction that it's, it's, it's cured or it's, it's solved. Um, And while the, certainly the, the therapeutics for dealing with it are extraordinary. They're also really expensive, unbelievably yep. expensive. And your ability to have a consistency in your life and job and family to take them yes. in the regularity that you have to is such a class divided thing. Yeah. The medications that have to be taken at the same time every day. You also have to <laughs> back way up. You have to know that you have it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's globally, it's something more like 20% of, of people with HIV don't know they have it. In the U.S., I think it's oh something God. like 13% who don't know they have it. Wow, so there's so, that to begin so with. Massive. I didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, I mean, my gosh, it, you know – yeah, all this access, um, the stability of the kind of life you need to have, the health insurance that you'd need to have, the support system that you'd need to have. There's also just, you know, it, it, the body that you need to have, right? Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Um, We have right now, for, for the best reasons, a burgeoning field of geriatric AIDS care. Um, this tends to be the people who, you know, have had it since maybe the 80s, the mm-hmm. early 80s or, or even longer, um, who against the odds in those early days have survived. Um, they are, you know, what happens if you get prostate cancer, like so many men in their seventies and you have this autoimmune condition, (laughs) how, you know, how is your treatment compromised? It's, it's not the 
relatively survivable cancer that it would be for for most men at this point. Yeah. So um, yeah, the the number of times at you know pre COVID book festivals, for instance, that someone would you know, some, some lovely donor, whoever was there, you know, at the book festival would, would ask me what my book was about. Um, and then I would, uh, you know, give the basics. I would just say it's, you know, largely about the AIDS epidemic in Chicago in the 1980s. And they'd come back with, isn't it great that we've solved all that? Uh, And, you know, sometimes they meant, um, you know, just they're, they're, they're thinking, well, you know, there's medication, everyone can deal with that. Now it's so livable. I know there's some problem. I've, I've heard something about some problem in Africa, but I think it's, you know, but here in the U S it's fine. Um, other times, two different times I came back with, well, you know, it's, it's not actually solved, you know, it's whatever. And the person said with almost the exact same wording. Well, no, because magic Johnson, Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Solved because for for Johnson. for millionaires, I guess. Right. Yeah, and I think that it was sort of um just really like but I but I know that he didn't die mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he's okay. He's still here, so it's cured, it's it's fixed. It's I'm, I'm not sure what it, what what it was they were trying to say, but okay, well, well yeah, if this yes, it it, it a multimillionaire who is literally one of the most fit people on mm-hmm, the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who can do nothing but care for his yeah. his physical health. Right. Started off as a as a physical god among men. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. exactly. He shouldn't be the hashtag for you know right, AIDS right. solved. No kidding. Um, that's amazing. Um, yeah. I wanted to talk yeah. a little bit about your. Um, your research into all of the sort of Chicago of the 1980s and and the crisis there. And also the, you know, the incredibly difficult um, line, which you, I think you, you hold so well between what you call allyship and appropriation Mm -hmm. Um, and wanting, as you say, your readers to experience a, a quote direct personal account of the AIDS crisis, um, while at the same time being you know very aware that there were that you were treading on in, into a community that that wasn't yours and that you would needing mm-hmm. be needing to approach with a different kind of imaginative care. So, mm-hmm. could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and before I do, I just I want to clarify for people you know who didn't read my my author note personally. Um, when I say I want people to experience a direct personal account, I mean not mine. Right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not, I'm not considering mine to be that. I'm you know saying like if this if this is the first thing people have read about AIDS, that I'm very much hoping that it leads them to um, reading uh, you know, uh, memoir reading direct history, something like, um, Sarah Schulman's new book, um, which is a history of a, a very personal history as well as a very research history of act up New York. Hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I will say I, I undertook this all with a healthy sense of terror that, you know, mm-hmm, <laughs> I, mm-hmm. this is the kind of thing, no one's going to stop you from writing this. Everyone's allowed to write whatever they want. Um, there are serious repercussions for getting something like this wrong, more treacherous territory than, for instance, getting the life of a dentist wrong. Um, the dentist will <laughs> don't mess with the American right. Dental Association. <laughs> they will come after you, Rebecca. 
right. I know. They, they got you in that chair then. No, but um, it partly, of course, you know, yes, personal repercussions. People could be mad at me, but more importantly, um, I could do harm in the world. I could, mm-hmm. I could, you know, misstate things. I could misrepresent things in a way that would really hurt members of that community, people who lived through this directly. So this is not something that I could undertake lightly. And the, the two questions I needed to ask myself before I began were, number one, um, am I taking voice away from some of those direct personal accounts by writing this? Or am I do I have the possibility to amplify those voices? And number two, can I do this really well? Because mm-hmm. um, if I can't, uh, that's that's worse than not doing, you know, that, that I'm doing harm in the world. Um, number one was fairly easy to answer in that it would be different if I were entering this story into a contest or if it were a short story and it's taking, a, uh, taking up a spot in an anthology or a journal. Um but the way book publishing works is that the success of any one book actually means more like it will be published. Um, money follows money in the right. publishing world. Yeah. And um, you've got to pitch it as my book is like this book, but yeah, but different. Yeah, my book <laughs> has been, I've been thrilled to see, has been used as a comp for a lot of, um, you know, other you know, books related to the AIDS crisis or LGBTQ history. And if, you know, if, if in some way the success of this book is, is proving the market is helping those books get published. I am thrilled. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, you know, as I um, continue to talk about this book out in the world, I'm able to direct people to other accounts. And, and I've also heard from readers that, you know, after they read my book, they went and sought out nonfiction things like that. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident with my answer to number one and, and, and you know, was tentatively confident at the time. <laughs> now that those things have been borne out, I'm very happy with that. Number two, can you do this well? God, that's a stickier thing, right? Because like, yeah. how do you know? <laughs> um, like, I think I did a great job. <laughs> Let's see. Um, the um, I, I knew that basically if I was going to do this, um, I, I needed to – um, do mountains of research. Um, and you know, you make a different commitment to realism and to reality, to the actual facts of something, um, with every fictional project. And my instinct right from the beginning was this needs to be granularly realistic. There are little things like, you know, you mentioned in my intro, Yale works at a fictional gallery at Northwestern. There was always a reason for anything I fictionalized. In that case, I, you know, the, his boss at this fictional gallery is, is being kind of untoward with students. And I yeah. did not want that to reflect on the actual director of the Block Museum right. in the 1980s. So I cleverly renamed it The Brig and no one will ever figure out that it's the same. Right. Um, but um it's still Northwestern University. It's still Chicago. Mm-hmm. He still mm-hmm. takes the same L to get there. You know, I, I wanted that realism everywhere else, um, including in medical detail, including in psychological detail of what it was like to live during this time. Um, yeah, those things detail. feel very, very vivid and, and real. They have a kind of verisimilitude in their texture and granularness, as you say. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I was going for. And that um, the, the actual research process, I, I, you know, I started off thinking I'll, I'll go with the laziest stuff first and I'll just go get 
the big, you know, boring book about history of AIDS in Chicago, and then quickly realized that did not exist. Uh, um, yeah. It, which like is a little horrifying. Um, and um, moved on then into the hard work right away, which is probably good for me, you know, kick in the ass. But um, it was a lot of archival stuff. So back issues of gay weeklies, that kind of thing, um, which fortunately the, the Harold Washington Library in Chicago had, had great collections of. Um, and then interviews, um, largely. And there, there were other things, too, certainly. There were, you know, there was film and all kinds of other resources, but the main things were archives and interviews and um, just, you know, started off kind of reaching out honestly on Facebook and saying, mm. um, does anyone want to talk to me? You know, people who lived through this, or you know, someone who lived through this. Um, I, Something good came story. out of Facebook. This is. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and, and saying like, you know, I'll, I'll, t- I'll buy you lunch, uh, I'll buy you drinks, whatever. I'm not going to, I don't need your story. I just need, you know, I, I'm not going to base a character on you. I just need detail. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it was, um, I hate feeling like I'm quoting terrible Republicans when I say this, but it was the known unknowns and the unknown oh. unknowns. <laughs> um, uh, He's appropriate to to quote this week. So <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, but um, you know, I, there were there were gaps I knew I had. Sometimes a, a chapter would grind to a halt because I'm going, well, I can't proceed unless I know the exact minutia of um, how it worked to get tested for HIV um, at this time. And there were other things where I'm just going, like I, I you know, I want to put something in a bar. I, I know I don't even know where to start to get the accuracy right. What bar am I going to pick? Oh, you yeah. know, that kind of thing. And, and then the stuff that I didn't even know would be a problem that the story that I'm, um, always telling on myself is that, um, in a very early draft, I had it, this in the third chapter, Yale has lost track of his friends. And he, I had him walking down North Halstead street where the gay bars were and are looking through windows, trying to find his friends mm. You cannot look through the window of a gay bar in that oh, yeah. <laughs> It's more of a generational thing, honestly, than than anything else. Like when I've said that to like gay men my age, they're like, "Why? What?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, but that was something. You know, I'm not going to read that in a book. Uh, it was not going to be in the Gay Weekly. Like, hey, have you guys noticed how the windows are all painted black? <laughs> like, yeah. we know, right? Um, it, it needed to come out in conversation, and yeah. as I was talking to a friend at Dunkin Donuts and he's telling me this stuff about the bar scene and I'm going, Oh my God, thank God I caught that. And it's, it's something that would have, you know, you could say, Oh, minor detail. It's not a minor detail. No, not at all. I mean, it says everything about how this community needs to hold together within itself because it also has to hide itself away. Exactly. Yes. And just the stress, the daily stress and pressure of, you know, are you out? How out are you? All those things. Um, it's just, it would, you know, it's ultimately one sentence of the book that I needed to change. But my God, it makes but a crucial. I mean, yeah, unbelievably absolutely. crucial. The yeah. um, and there were, yeah, I was there just were plenty gonna... of other things like that. Um, it, 
often things that I caught before they became a problem. But, you know, this is why those interviews were absolutely essential. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's clear that every every detail starts to carry a lot of weight. And the Mm -hmm. other, you know, the thing that's that's incredibly detailed about this um, novel is its Chicago-ness. And I think one Mm -hmm. of the things I liked is that, you know, for a lot of people, the AIDS crisis of the 1980s lives in San Francisco and New York. But meanwhile, you know, as you you know, as one of the kind of key scenes in the novel documents, there were there was a huge act up um, protest in Chicago. There was, you know, obviously any metro area in particular was was feeling this crisis uh, in extraordinary ways. Um, why did in particular did you want to set it in Chicago? Yeah, um, one compelling reason uh, although it wasn't my initial reason was that I was writing away from myself, writing across difference in so many ways. Um, I've lived most of my life in Chicago uh, other than college. And a couple of years afterwards, Chicago felt like pretty safe ground for me. Um, I can, you know, I can, I'm sweating out all these other details, but I can confidently write about what street intersects with what other street. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know whether Yale would be a Cubs fan or a Sox fan. Like, I, I just don't have to think about those things. That was, you know, it was just one way to make it a little easier for myself. Yeah. That said, that was not my initial reason. Um, you know, I, I was, I mean, I think I, I think I started on the instinct of like, I'm going to put this in Chicago, but then you certainly come back and, and really reconsider those big decisions early on. Um, and I, you know, for one thing, you're always trying as a writer to steer away from the unexpected, to steer away from cliche. And I'm certainly not saying that setting it in San Francisco would have been a cliche, but it would have been expected. And it would have been yeah. a story that people yeah, yeah. have heard. Someone from San Francisco would do a much better job with that. Uh, yeah, you know, you're, you're always trying to, to do the unexpected. And I knew that in Chicago, I had um, the city that, you know, I was fairly confident this particular story of AIDS in Chicago, um, you know, while it's been told n- not nearly as broadly, it's not the place that someone would set the feature film about yeah. AIDS, right? It's yeah, not the right. go-to thing. Um, and that appealed to me just on the the writer level. Um, you you want to do the thing, you know, it's, it's out there. It's, it's, you know, it, it's not that it didn't exist. <laughs> um, it's the thing that we, we don't tend to talk about. Um, and then I, I really, the more I found out about it, the more I found the ways in which Chicago's AIDS history was unique, um, as, you know, every city's AIDS history is unique, the more I really doubled down on that and felt like, you know, really, you know, I feel a sense of responsibility as I'm discovering certain details of, God, can I get this in there? It's important to get this in there. You don't want to overburden your novel. You don't want it to feel didactic. You, you know, you don't want that over-researched feel, but is right. there a way to get this one detail in there? Because, oh my God, this is fascinating. Hmm. Um, and there was so much, of course, that I couldn't put in. But um, that's really been driven home for me as I've toured with the book over the past three years. You go to other cities um, and you have conversations there, you know, with the audience or with someone who's uh, up on stage with you about that city's AIDS history. And they're, you know, wildly different. Certainly there are similarities, but, you know, like I, um, The Great Believers was the one book, one city, sorry, one city, one book read for San Diego. Um, 
Oh, a couple interesting. Of years ago. And <laughs> yeah, that one, you know, I mean, I, I'm up on, I'm, you know, was introduced by the guy who was like the, the major LGBTQ historian of San Diego. And he's talking about AIDS in San Diego, the, you know, sh- the history of like what's happening with Mexico at the time is very relevant there. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. And, you know, partly, you know, it's immigration, it's, it's what communities are affected. It's also though that like a lot of Americans were trying to get to Mexico to get experimental drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Completely different story. Mm, Right. So much. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, and those, uh, you know, when those stories aren't told, we end up with one story that people feel they've already heard. And this is one of many dangers of it. But that, you know, you start in on the like uh, the the San Francisco story. It's and say that's the new feature film, and it's here's a promising young lawyer from San Francisco, and his you know his father is kind of gruff, but his mother really supports him. It, it's it's like great that that was real. But I could see how people then would go, okay, I know this story already. Yeah. Um, I've heard this one and, you know, but you've heard it because that happened to a lot of people. Um, but, you know, when we get into specifics, we discover that there are actually infinite stories to be told here and infinite things to learn from mm-hmm. those stories. Um, and the, that specificity, I think it's something that, for one thing, I'm, I'm really keen on those those stories being written by survivors at this point or by the doctors who treated those you know the initial patients in these different places yeah um people who um you know while they are still with us we we have a lot of history to to um, that hopefully they'll be willing to share. Yeah, you have an a, an amazing oral history um, work that's titled "They Were Warriors," um, mm-hmm. which documents um, one of the largest ACT UP protests uh, that called for visibility and healthcare action and equality for those suffering with AIDS. Um, this ended up, you know, coming out a good deal after the novel. How was this project a coda for you? Yeah, well, so and and it, what it is, it's a it's a lengthy magazine article. It appeared in Chicago Magazine in April of 2020, which was the 30th anniversary of the major national ACT UP demonstration in Chicago that that I do write about in the late chapter of the Great Believers. Um, it was you know it came from two places. One being that. Uh, I was realizing this anniversary was coming up and going, I bet, you know, a lot of people don't know about this. I learned so much about it. I just really want to tell people about it. Um, And the other being that this was one of those areas where I had learned so much more in my research process than I could possibly use in a novel of this length. (laughs) Um, You know, and I'm I'm talking, I'm dealing with one character, like he's not there at the lesbian planning committee. (laughs) It's like, you know, um, (laughs) other things, but I learned that were amazing. I, and I knew that I had those contacts in this world, people that I could go back and interview. Some of them I was interviewing for the first time. I, I had not, um, spoken with him, uh, 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 you know, for my initial research. Um, others were people I'd, I'd interviewed for the Great Believers as well, and I knew that they'd been at that demonstration. And um, I, you know, it was, it, God, it was, it was a lot of work actually. Oral histories are, whew. Um, but I, um, I ended up, you know, with hours and hours of recorded conversation. And then you're trying to go back and put those voices in conversation with each other, which yeah. is 
that's really what's interesting. that's what's stark on the page um is seeing yeah. those sort of individual their little icons and then seemingly in conversation with one another and i wondered right. how much editorial work it took to sort of put that together so much and the, the hardest thing was cutting because mm. people were telling the most amazing stories and again it's like okay i could pub- I, this could be a book <laughs> you know this could be a whole entire thing um it was just um you know, killed me to cut the sentences or, or entire stories or just words to get it all in there. But um, only two of those people were actually talking together. Everyone else, I was oh, talking really? to oh, um, individually. That's interesting. And so, yeah, so to put them into conversation was was a trip. But it it, it was also lovely because these were people who would not have, you know, one of the people I interviewed, he's a pretty big activist now, but that had, he had been a college student and that was his first um, demonstration of any kind. And he really didn't know these people who had mm. organized it, who are a decade or two older than him. And sort of to, to weave his voice in, that was really satisfying. It's, I, I don't know how this would work with the copyright, but I, I would dearly hope that maybe with some future edition of the great believers that we could get that in there. As oh yeah. It would be a wonderful appendix. appendix. Yeah. yeah. You, yeah, you yeah. should, you should push for that. I think I'm that would be wonderful. To. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, for me, you know, the, obviously, this is a book that is, is both about um, the AIDS crisis, but it is also a book about families and families that we're born into and that we choose and that we make and and craft and and AIDS heightens and focuses the question, especially about the kind of sacrifices we make for those um, whom we love. Did writing about the AIDS crisis reveal something about the nature of our most important relationships to one another for you? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, you're, it would be really unsatisfying to write novels and not be really learning about the human condition as you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to, to sit there and write something you already knew would be the the worst kind of boring um and i mean that i, I take that back because i know i have friends who happily write cozy mysteries or whatever you know <laughs> it's, it's not but um but if you're really trying to write literature if that's your aim um you know capital l literature um you you know ideally you're gonna i mean and you're gonna spend like five years at least on a book um you want to be you know this is this is the work of the soul um, I think in many ways, mm. um, you know, I think the the two things that were, well, there, there were several psychological things that were really interesting for me, but I'll, I'll say two of them were, um, there's just the, the idea of human attachment, um, what we feel we owe each other, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. whether that, you know, whether that's because we are literally family or you make a promise to someone or just because you knew them. Um, you knew them young enough that they're just kind of constantly a, you know, part of you. Um, th- there were just fascinating conversations I had with people where someone would say, you know, they'd be talking about a friend they lost in their twenties and they're in their fifties now. And then they're saying, God, I, you know, I feel really guilty talking about this all because, you know, we, we were really close when he died, but honestly we would have moved apart and I've had much more meaningful relationships since then. But because I was one of the closest people to him when he died, I feel like I have this responsibility to his legacy. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, that's a complicated mm-hmm. sentiment. Yeah. Um, and I'm really interested in exploring that more. It's one of the reasons that, um, 
I set part of the book in 2015, um, which had not initially been my plan, but I became so fascinated by the, you know, survivor's guilt, uh, you know, long-term mourning, um, mm-hmm. the way, you know, what your life is like if you were given a death sentence at 23 and you're still here 30 yeah. years later. Wow. Um, you know, th- those became absolutely fascinating to me. And the other thing um, that's very weird to write about is death. Um, you know, you, the good thing about writing about death is no one can be like, well, I've died and it wasn't anything like that. <laughs> so, you know, like literally everyone who's ever written about death from Tolstoy to Shakespeare to Toni Morrison, whatever, is guessing. And you're guessing too. Um, the um, One of the this lovely story that I heard, there's this playwright named Scott McPherson who lived in Chicago, who, who died of AIDS in the early nineties. He wrote the play Marvin's room, which then became a movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's about cancer, basically someone dying of cancer. And, um, he'd written that I think shortly after his own HIV diagnosis. So he was dealing with that. But, um, he, I was talking to a friend of his who said that, um, at the end of his life, Scott said to him, you know, I, when I wrote that play, I had to do a lot of guessing about what, you know, what death would be like. And I'm so proud of myself because I got it right. And it's like, Oh God, (laughs) um, that's, that's heavy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, it, 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 you know, if nothing else, it's weird because in, in like with so much else, I was writing across difference. I was writing outside of myself. Um, but I, in, in this very different way, because I, there was no one I could really ask. And, and like I said, there's no one who's going to tell me I got it wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're all in this work of imagining that together, which is of course how we get religion. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) A lot of human society has been, has structured around, well, we have no idea what that's all about. So we better have a, we better have a good narrative for it or it's going to be too scary. Yeah. That's completely it. It's like, Oh God, you know, definitely not alone in, uh, in needing to figure this out. And of course I wasn't, I'm not going into any afterlife or anything um, in my book, although that would have been interesting. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> I'm glad that, that you don't you don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> the sequel, um, you know, you're 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 in this fundamentally terrifying unknown territory and and fundamentally safe territory because you can't possibly get it wrong. Yeah, which was that was fascinating to me. Um, so, the Great Believers is also an art novel. Um, mm-hmm. It is. Um, it's quite knowing about the world of museums and art trading and the value of masterworks and conflict over public and private collections. Um, And it's also really interested in how photography in particular documented the lives of those living with and dying from AIDS when much of America desperately wanted to look away. Um, Why did you decide to have the secondary drama of the novel be about art yeah, weirdly, that was originally the primary storyline of the novel. That was oh, what I set out to write a novel about. Huh. Um, I wanted to write a, a novel about a woman who had been an artist's model, artist's muse, um, in Paris before and after World War One. Oh, so and Nora was going to be the she the was focus the main character, and then it turned into okay. Well, she's telling her stories to someone, so it's really a two. You know, it's really two people. It's both of their stories. 
Um, and, and really, honestly, the way that AIDS came into it was I figured she couldn't have lived much past the 1980s. So I'm going to put this in the 80s. I have an art guy. Maybe AIDS is a subplot. It's what's going on in the background of his life. Things change a lot, you know, in your initial conception. And, and even before I started writing or researching at all, you just sit there and you think about it. And, uh, you know, I was finishing my last book. It stews for a while. And um, then once I started writing, she be- even then she became less and less of the book. Um, it, you know, it, 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 it's hard to write someone sitting there and telling you stories. Uh, that's a fairly static scene. I still wanted her history. I didn't want to be jumping uh, there in time. You know, I wanted it to be relevant. I, I wanted to keep her. And it, it needed to all fit into Yale's world. So, uh, you know, it, it rather than just him passively listening to some random donor, I needed some drama around it. And I needed something yeah. going on other than the AIDS crisis in his life. Because, you know, to put the blinders on and be like, well, all he thinks about all day is AIDS would be, um, you know, I think inaccurate mm-hmm. uh, in an in, in, inaccurate representation and and, and a disservice you know, to the fullness yeah, of lives lived ex- then. exactly right like what you know what life is this disease interrupting um you need to have a, a solid arc there not just some sense of oh he'd been a promising young lawyer um but what was he in the what, what is he in the middle of and and are there moments of triumph in there as as well as you know the devastation going on around him um you know i i really like the visual art world i um i've kind of touched on it before in my um in in the 100 year house which was my second novel and and in my story collection um I've gotten much more familiar with the visual art world in terms of working artists from my time staying at artists' residencies. Oh yeah, um, staying someplace like like Yaddo in upstate New York or like Ragdale near Chicago, and it's a mix of writers, visual artists, musicians, etc. And you know, you live with people for three weeks, for four weeks, and you visit their studios and you see their work and you talk to them about their gallery representation and the problems they're going through. Um, that certainly is not the contested will and acquisition of museum side of things, but it, it really is a, has been for me a really interesting introduction to that world. So I, I think one of the reasons that that keeps, and it, it, it is one of the reasons that, that keeps popping up in my own writing, not at all a part of the novel that I'm finishing right now. So, uh, <laughs> but we'll see if I get back to it. Um, it, it took a significant amount of research in and of itself. Oh I yeah. I was clear. It was clear when you can <laughs> sort of talk about Modigliani in, you know, in, in fine detail that there was yeah. a lot that had gone into the way you were representing yeah. it. Yeah. Well, and that stuff that, you know, the art world of the 1920s, Paris, that's easy to find books about, right? That's, that's really, I could read infinite biographies, um, easy to find stuff online. Um, You know, in contrast to AIDS in Chicago, which you would think would merit a couple books. (laughs) But um, uh, the, the stuff that I really had to go out and then talk to people about was the contested will, art acquisition, um, how do you authenticate a painting? All oh, that yeah, stuff. So I'm talking to some art world people too. That um yeah, so the art that lives in the in the novel is is 
is really very present. And there's also this photographer who you see in, you know, his early days as a kind of up and coming um, photographer capturing um, moments in a way that you know, as you say, there's there isn't the great Chicago book of the the AIDS moment, and yet there right. is that photography. And I was yeah. wondering if you were, um, if there were particular photographers that you yeah. you were looking at. I was. Um, there's there's a photographer named Doug Iskar, I S C H A R, who his work is very different than what I de- how I describe Richard's work, work in the book. Um, but one of the first things I found in my earliest laziest moments of research, just kind of Googling AIDS in Chicago, um, was um, his photographic work. And particularly, he did a lot of photographs um, of men sunbathing on the Belmont rocks, which are mentioned in my book, although I don't set any scenes there. It's just a lovely sunbathing spot that was kind of um, these rocks on Lake Michigan, but below street level. So they were quite hidden. Um, And uh, became a a very important uh, gay spot. Um, he had these incredible photographs and those were some of the first, you know, real visuals I had on the moment, on the era, the things that really stuck with me. And, um, you know, he's, I, I don't know him. He's, he's still around. Um, and I think, you know, making some of those photographs public, uh, now that, that were not public at the time for, for obvious reasons. Um, then there were, you know, certainly more kind of high art, um, New York photographers, the, you know, um, the people who were doing protest art, who were, um, uh, you know, uh, whether that was conceptual, like the work of Felix Gonzalez Torres, which really fascinates me, um, or whether it was documentation. Um, so those all became really important, uh, you know, in my thinking about it. The fun thing for me with Richard, with that, with that character is that, you know, I was initially, as I said, just writing in the 1980s. Um, so I just had him, um, as this kind of older guy hanging around the outside of this crowd and really likes to take photos. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I'm, you know, I'd written about a hundred pages of the way in when I realized I wanted to go back and weave in this quote unquote contemporary 2015 feels like ancient history now, but it was 2015. Um, I wanted to weave in this contemporary storyline and then I'm having to think about, okay, you know, where does everyone end up? And um, it just, I I don't know, it made me very happy to make Mm -hmm. him incredibly successful and to make these, these photographs that people had sort of dismissed as his hobby to really make them, you know, incredibly important, not only as art, but as, as a record of, of AIDS. Yeah. I I love the, the, the celebrity that he has and how those depictions become, become art, uh, as a, as a form of documentation, but as also like exquisite, um, beauty. Yeah, it really, I don't know. It it made me happy to give him that life. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you feel, um, the, things turn out better for him certainly than for many people. And, um, in this case, I think probably beyond, you know, what anyone would have even dared to hope for him. And that, that, 
the book needed the book needs some of that in it you know yeah i wanted to um switch directions a little bit and and say um a bit about your your short story work uh which has has really appeared everywhere um and for a time you held the the very unofficial record for most stories included in a row in the best american short stories annual collection um and so your your stories really have had kind of equal critical um, praise and 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 prominence, but I, short story collections are for whatever reason kind of hard sells to the yeah. general reading public. I think writers love them, academics mm-hmm. love them, and certainly they have a readership. Um, but why do you think? publishing is so geared towards the longer works and has it been hard mm. to be someone who who works actively in both mm. um you know i i love both forms um i i tend to start writing based on the idea that i have and sometimes it's a story idea and sometimes it's a novel idea um uh, you know i have i have a story coming out soon in harper's it'll be like the september or i think like the september issue of harper's which will probably come out in august um, I, I will keep doing both. I, I've made my peace certainly with the audience for them, just in thinking about the audience for short film as a corollary. Oh, wow. Um, you know, like I, you watch the Oscars and it's like, you know, how many of those short films have you actually seen? Yeah. <laughs> if you're not a major, major film buff, probably not any of them. None, <laughs> none. Unless you go to those festivals at movie theaters yeah. where they show them all. Right. Maybe now that we can get them online, maybe it's more, right? Mm-hmm. But um, they are, I understand, you know, their their place in the film world is they are for the film buffs, they are for the filmmakers, they are very important, they influence other things, they can be testing grounds for people, all kinds of different roles that they play. And I think the short story, you know, in some ways has a has a similar place. That said, you know, there, there are stories that achieve sort of absolutely iconic status mm-hmm. in That's a way true. That, That's true. that is much more than short film, right? Like, I don't know what the short film equivalent of A Good Man is Hard to Find would be yeah. um, or The Lottery or whatever. Or A&P so, or something like that. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I, you know, I... I, I know what happens in terms of book publishing, I can tell you, which is that, or, or I have a strong theory is what I'll say. <laughs> it's really hard to talk about a story collection. It's really hard to, you know, con- to, to talk about it in a way that your sister is going to remember or mm-hmm. that a bookseller can talk about it to a, a customer. What are you going to say? Like, this is 15 really good stories about 15 different things. Yeah, they're all great. They're varied. <laughs> Right. They're very, they're very strong. They they range from this to this, the authors from Boston and like, okay, versus the like, well, it's about a murder in the North Carolina swamps. And then it's like, okay, that, that sticks in my mind. Right. right? Um, That seems true to me. Yeah, you could get sort of the hook in there of like, and so she has to decide if she's going to stay or go. And then someone reads to find out, you know, from that hook. Um, I've I've done these things where sometimes like for independent bookstore day, they'll have authors come into a bookstore and be, you know, hand selling their picks to customers. And I can't sell a story collection to save my life. Like, you know, once in a while, someone will like when I've done this, someone's like, well, I'm, I'm, you know, looking for a gift for my girlfriend. She wants to be a writer. 
they'll buy a story collection. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I could have, you know, five books sitting there that are my picks. They haven't heard of any of them. They're not coming in looking for a certain thing. And I'm, you know, sometimes they will outright say, oh, it's stories. I'm not interested. Yeah. Other times it's just like, you know, you kind of give them the pitch for three books and they're going to pick up the one where they're like, ooh, this sounds interesting. I want to see what happens. Or, wow, it's set in Milwaukee. I used to live in Milwaukee. And there's something there for them, mm. some hook. But then I think that happens, you know, like, who is Terry Gross going to have on Fresh Air? You can't have an hour-long conversation about, wow, the sentences sure are great. Right. Wow, you know, like, you want a topic. And I'll say, like, I think with The Great Believers, some of the early radio publicity I had, it, you know, it's not necessarily the book you know my the way that i wrote the book but it's like oh aids we can talk about aids for an hour Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um that i you know it it makes a difference and it's certainly not like why anyone picks what they i mean no one i have respect any respect for is going to pick their subject based on like you know what's going to make good radio (laughs) but um no but it has a it has an effect on on what happens to those books and what their lives are like and and there are so many accomplished um writers of of short fiction who maybe don't work in the novel but have you know much smaller audiences even though their craft and their their work is is equal to to people right. working in that larger form yeah no yeah and th- there are people who um i was delighted recently to discover that Stuart dieback whom i have great respect for as a short story writer as a chicago writer um that he's very famous in japan hmm. <laughs> famous in japan so <laughs> yeah and it's like yeah they, they love short stories there that's what gets translated i was just like that's so cool <laughs> That is cool and deserved. Uh, and yeah. so I, I have another question about that is adjacent to and incredibly important to the publishing world, and that's uh, literary prizes. Mm. <clears throat> and you are you're judging the Penn Faulkner this year, um, yeah. and I'm I'm fascinated by literary awards. My most recent essay is about the enormous influence and scandals of the man Booker prize. Um, but I was hoping you would, you would talk a little bit about what it's like behind the scenes, judging a major yeah. prize like this. This is the bizarrely. This is the third year in a row that I've judged a major prize. I did the Penn Jean Stein award two years ago. And then last year was the national book award. Oh for fiction. yeah. I forgot. That. Um, no, that's a rather, that's a rather large one. <laughs> it is. Um, and it's a lot of reading <laughs> really learned a lot about myself as a reader. Like how do I squeeze reading in? How many books do you have to read? Well, it's like define read, right? Because there certainly are books where after a page you're going no, mm-hmm, <laughs> like mm-hmm. in some cases, it's like, this is fun, but this is not the National Book Award. You know, like yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, people can submit um, pretty much anything except for self-published work. And so um, you get some stuff where it's like, this is, you know, God, it's it's a YA fantasy vampire novel. This this looks like a great one of those, but this is... Uh, it's a it's, different it's, prize than that. Right, <laughs> its aim seems to be to entertain from what I can tell. This is not right. Um, so... Um, and there are things that you just, I mean, to, I, I don't think I'll scandalize anyone by saying this. There are things that you read a couple pages and go, this is terribly written. I'm not going to continue. Why would I, mm-hmm. you know, um, because again, like, you know, <laughs> almost anything can be submitted. Um, you know, I think, I think for the, both the national book award and the 
Penn Faulkner, I think it's, you know, it's around 300 to a thousand. It depends, you know, with the national book award people, that's an amazing amount of books. I know. (laughs) Choice as a committee. Are we going to split up the reading and then, you know, recommend things to each other? Are we going to do that alphabetically? Are we going to all try to read everything? And, and then that process needs to remain pretty secret. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to be like, well, I read letters, whatever through whatever. And then people start to go, Oh, so you're the one who didn't pick this. Um, (laughs) But um, it, it is an enormous amount of reading. I've realized, you know, I'm, I'm, I've trained myself to be a much better reader on audio, but not every book works for me on audio and you got to make mm-hmm. sure you're giving it a fair shake. Yeah. Um, and I listen at double speed because that's um, how my brain, you know, like I, I pay better attention that way. You just, you are the reading. only person for whom that is the, <laughs> that is the case. <laughs> I don't know. I have at least one friend who does that too. I, I get, if I have time to, if it goes too slow, I have time to zone out and then I zone out. Um, I think I have, I have, um, pretty intense ADD actually. And I think that, um, I've heard that as, as a thing for ADD, like things, things that go faster, hold your attention better. Um, do you know the podcaster, um, John Lovett of pod save America and love it or leave it. He, he talks about, um, listening, needing to listen to things on double speed. That's interesting. Okay, so there you go. Yeah, yeah. It just yeah, I pay I pay much better attention. <laughs> um, so you know that's a thing. I'm I'm just am I you know how can I squeeze reading in is like a big part of it. Um, you know what can I do? Can I can I get five minutes of audio in as I walk to the fitness center? Mm. Then once I'm in the fitness center, can I switch to a book when I'm on the elliptical? But then I'm off the elliptical and I'm lifting weight. So I'm going to switch back to my audiobook. Like it, um, it, so it's, it's good for me in that way. Um, I think one thing that's not great for me is that I've read like practically nothing but contemporary American fiction for three years in a row now. Oh yeah. And that might not be ideal. Mm. Well, it gives you a, 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 a wonderful, but limited archive, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, the great thing is, you know, we are in an absolute heyday of there's tremendous diversity, not as much as there should or could be, but there is more diversity in American literature than there ever has been. Um, and I mean that also in terms of style, um, but, but certainly in terms of who's writing, who's getting published, um, the kinds of stories being told. Uh, So it's not like you're reading the same book again and again and again, which I think that if you were doing this in like 1950, so that is phenomenal. And you're reading for, you know, the person does not have to have been born in America. They just have to be vaguely, you know, American living here, whatever. So you get things that are, you know, I have the aesthetic and the, um, the subject matter of other places in a, in a really, uh, authentic way as well so it's not you know but you know when this is all done i think i want to embark on a year of like reading classic literature and translation you know mm. like what's the best romanian novel ever i'm gonna go read that mm-hmm. from 1930 whatever um I, i'm gonna need a palate cleanser um but <laughs> it, it is uh, everything about this process is fascinating to me and it, it just the distinctions that you end up making between a good book and a great book, a great book Mm -hmm. and one of the five best books of the year. Like how, you know, you end up second guessing yourself, but at the same time, the really, really great ones, 
it's like, yes, it's, you know, it, it feels, it feels almost obvious. Sometimes. Do they have like um, a, an, an aura about them? Is it, is it something <laughs> that you can really sort of like pinpoint as this is like dialogue that is like nothing else mm. I've ever read or is, or is it just a like sensibility? It's probably the amount of the bribe. That <laughs> right. <No>. Yeah. How <laughs> thick is the envelope that I was handed? <laughs> no, no. That's how much the aura uh, it is. is. <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. For the record, it is an incredibly pure process. Like you are really, you know, there, there's, there's no way for anyone to influence anyone on this. Mm. It is, you know, the most absolutely pristine judging process you could imagine. Um, and certainly everyone has their own you know, prejudices on in terms of what they like to read, people have preconceived notions of what a certain author is. So it, it's not that it's entirely objective in some way, but um, it is genuinely like, you know, you're going to pick, I mean, one of the books that we picked for the shortlist for the National Book Award was this story collection, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies by Disha oh, Filia. Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, it, it went on to win other prizes, but the National Book Award goes first. And so she had not had other prize recognition yet. And this was a paperback original debut short story collection from West Virginia University Press. Yeah. <laughs> um, who certainly had not printed enough copies. <laughs> bad about that. Like, yeah, you, you them broke that? them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, but you know, that that's not influence. It's not that it comes from some it, it didn't come with like, splashier publicity certainly um mm. we just it was like clearly it stood one of on books. its stood on its own in an it amazing did. way yeah. and that but is yeah, a I mean, superior book oh my gosh oh you read it I'm yeah so glad. Oh, that's, that makes me happy um yeah you know you're looking for certainly i think technical mastery you know flawless writing flawless execution of of scene and plot and character and dialogue and on the sentence level and then on top of that you know our our original things being done on all of those levels mm -hmm. our original things you know are there sentences that kind of make me blink in admiration and jealousy um are there things just you know phrasings or thoughts that i've never seen before um and then on top of all that is it overall doing something interesting, important, relevant, vital, or does it feel like this is a brilliant version of the same book that I've read before? Right. Yeah. And that, um, you know, there, you know, certainly you're going to have friendly disagreement on that stuff within um, a committee, which is one of the fun things about it, seeing, you know, what other people care about, how they read. Um, but, you also end up with, you know, when, you know, it's it's one thing for one person to be like, this is my favorite book. When five people or three people or whatever the size of the committee, when they, when they get to a consensus about like, you know, all of us from various traditions, various walks of life, all agreed that this book was spectacular um, and is worthy of a prize. That's, that's a book that's really doing something. Yeah. You know, so... 
it's um i know that because you're you're judging the prize you're you're limited in the conversations you can have about um really contemporary stuff but i'd be remiss yes. in our in our summer moment if i didn't ask you about some more nostalgic summer reads mm-hmm. and maybe what are the thing the books from your summer's past that continue to to resonate or made an impact as sort of piv- pivotal of that particular yeah. summer Oh God! Well, I think that um, the the greatest summer read of all time is Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety. Wow! You that just is... threw down. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it, it's not going to be. It's funny because it's not my favorite book. Um, I love it. It's not, but it just is like I don't know if you are sitting outside somewhere beautiful and you just want to read and like and you know old school classic. It is just gorgeous. I've never read it. I know that's terrible, but you're gonna love it. I I will read it this summer, just based on your enormous um, flag you've just planted for it. What's amazing is it really doesn't have much of a plot. It's it's like this academic couple starts in Madison, Wisconsin, and then it ends up in Vermont on a lake, um, which you know I am in Vermont on a lake right now. so that probably helps with my mm-hmm. whole appreciation <laughs> of the book. But it it's like them growing older together and it's just heartbreaking and beautiful and not a lot happens at all. It's just kind of a normal life. Um it's so good. It really you had I, I it will make me so happy if you read this and then don't hate it. Um, <laughs> uh, my recommendation. So. I'm not going to tell you I hate it, even if yeah. I do, because I, <laughs> you wouldn't like me anymore. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, the the way that we know each other is from um, from both of us doing our master's degrees uh, at uh, Middlebury College in the summer at the Bridliff School of English, and I mean we that was you know several five summers um i ended up with more because i i stayed and audited stuff when i was on staff um but you're you know you're in this incredibly bucolic place and then you're reading like dante or um, (laughs) whatever it is so um i i think that those number those summers cemented for me the idea that i'm uh, you know a summer read for me is not necessarily a light book Mm -hmm. um it's something you know I don't know how we got to that idea. I think I guess it's the idea of people relaxing, but um, I, you know, I I think I should save my light books for when I'm you know dashing around and yeah. getting my kids to school, yeah, yeah, and teaching and blah blah blah. That's when I should. Yeah, read fall is the light, fluffy. the light, fluffy yeah. book time. Summer is like give me the give me the meaty. Yeah, the, I have the, time. The fat one. Right, I have two hours. I'm in a hammock. I can read some you know, Virginia Woolf or whatever. So um, that's, uh, I think, you know, and, and like I said, this, this is not the summer for that. This is the summer. I'm just going to read whatever they send me. Some of it's going to be heavy. Some of it's going to be light. It's going to be interesting mix. But um, uh, next summer, when I embark on my literature and translation project, this will be the, you know, We'll see how many Russian novels I can get in in one summer. <laughs> I think that's going to be a pretty fantastic summer. Yeah. Um, well, Rebecca, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today and talking about your 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 wonderful novel and um, and so much else. Uh, and I'm just so happy I got a chance to talk to you. 
Likewise. Thank you so much. This is a great interview. I really appreciate it. Well, have a great summer. Thanks. Well, that's it for today's show. There's so much in store for you this summer, beginning with Welcoming to the Pod, Hermione Hobie, author of The Summer Smash, Virtue. And that will be followed directly by my interview with Brian Hall, whose The Stone Loves the World is as rich and intellectually brimming as you could ever want for your heady summer read of the year. If you're like me and starting to do a little traveling for the first time in 18 months, stay safe, take it all in, and bring a book. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Uh-huh.